Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal here is to find uh, exceptional people in their fields, people that aren't just doing the -the run-of-the-mill work, but they're really pushing themselves and finding the latest advances and, uh, you know, are are well-spoken and working on really interesting topics. So today is no exception. I have uh, James J. Collins. He's a professor of medical engineering and science at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard and the Wyss Institute, which is spelled W-Y-S-S. And uh, I probably didn't pronounce very well, but that's what it's called. So, uh, James, it looks like we're going to be talking about uh, antibiotics that will attack the world's nastiest bacteria. Um, Tell me a little bit about your work. So our lab, uh, which is based also at MIT, in addition to the Broad and the Wyss, has really been focused the last decade or so on using bioengineering principles to better understand how antibiotics act and resistance arises really with the primary goal of using these insights to expand our arsenal against bacterial pathogen. Mm. Starting now just about a year ago, we teamed up with Regina Barzilay, one of my colleagues here at MIT and one of the world's leading experts in applying AI to healthcare. And we decided to see if we could harness the power of AI to address the same challenge. And that is, could we use artificial intelligence to discover novel antibiotics? So head of bacteria, um become resistant to antibiotics? Is there a handful of mechanisms or is there seem to be an infinite variation of how they do it? You know, there's a handful of mechanisms that dominate. Uh, Four come to mind. One is that the bacteria will mutate the target of the drug. So many of our antibiotics target specific proteins, enzymes, different components of the bug, and the bacteria will mutate those targets, thereby making it more difficult for the drug to bind to the target and inhibit associated activity leading to death. Second is that the bug, the bacteria, will turn on pumps. So the bugs have pumps that will help them pump the drug out of them before the bug can, before the drug can have its lethal effects on the bug. Third is the bacteria are very clever at sharing with each other plasmids. So plasmids are rings of DNA that can carry different genes that themselves encode for certain functions. Bacteria in particular like to share plasmids that carry antibiotic resistance genes. And fourth, and finally, a mechanism that our lab uncovered about 10 years ago is that antibiotics themselves can be active mutagens. And that is that if you deliver an antibiotic at a sub level, it's possible for that antibiotic to produce metabolic byproducts or toxic byproducts in the cell of the bacteria, the bacteria itself, that damage its DNA, leading to mutations. So our use of antibiotics, if you don't kill the bug, you can actually make it stronger. In terms of uh, bacteria sharing plasmids, do the plasmids endogenize into the target period bacteria's DNA, or do they regulate gene expression without, you know, uh, becoming part of the bacteria's DNA? Like, do you know what happens upon receipt of these uh, plasmids? You know, it depends on the plasmid, but in many cases, they don't integrate into the DNA. They can just stay as part of the bacterium outside of its genome, but within its cytoplasm, and will divide replicate along with the bug as the bug divides and replicates. 
And uh, do plasmids tend to produce pumps? Do they tend to uh, help alter receptors? Like, is there a main function that they tend to do, or do they do many? You know, the, the main function that gets transferred by the plasmids are typically enzymes that will serve to inactivate an antibiotic. So, for example, a beta-lactamase. So, a beta-lactamase is an enzyme or class of enzymes that will inactivate antibiotics from the beta-lactam class that include penicillin, for example. How do they inactivate? Do they bind to the antibiotic or, you know, does, does the antibiotic, um, does it bind to the, the outer membrane of the bacteria and the bacteria produces a compound that locks up the, uh, the antibiotic and keeps it there? Like, what's the mechanism going on? You know, in this case, the beta-lactamase will actually degrade, so it will break down the antibiotic. And most antibiotics actually act intracellularly, so they'll, they'll enter the cell, the bacterial cell, and then interact with a molecular target or set of targets disrupt that process. And what we showed is that the bug often doesn't like that. We'll ramp up different activities that will attempt to remediate that damage, that insult. And as a result, the bug will turn up its metabolism. There will be toxic byproducts of that as the bug is effectively spinning its wheel, spewing out toxins. And those toxins end up damaging aspects of the bug, proteins, DNA, its membranes. And these damages accumulate, accumulate and actually lead to death. So does there appear to be a preference of bacteria where, whereby they'd, they preferentially try not to allow the antibiotics into their membrane in the first place? Or is it that, you know, for the most part, they're going to enter. So once they've entered, they'll, they'll use uh, acquired plasmids to defend or they'll use pumps to pump stuff out. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's largely a random process uh, where you know, the bug obviously wants to divide and keep going. And will um, most of the the bugs will will die in the face of the antibiotic, but those that got lucky, either they acquired a mutation in their target, or maybe they were able to turn on the pumps before the drugs could take over, or maybe they were nearby a plasmid. Those are the ones that then survive and can propagate, and so then you can see the culture regrow around these resistant bugs. And so it's it's very very stochastic. And in many cases, not clear. The, the, the challenge of the pumps, for example, is that it's, it's very costly to the bug. So it takes a lot of energy for the bug to turn on the pumps. And much of that energy the bug would prefer to have toward dividing and propagating. And so it comes at some cost. And so it's easier or better for the bug to select for mechanisms that are not as costly. Well, why would a bacteria make plasmids at all? I mean, I would think that would be energy intensive and it would have to know, all right, I have to help other bacteria besides me, why would it, uh, that seems like you know, an external focus type it's, thing. It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, usually they're, they're often not, I guess, technically making them, they're replicating them, and usually would only do it if it comes at an advantage to it. So the plasma might carry a metabolism-boosting gene or a protective gene. Um, you know, your question underlies, though, an interesting phenomenon we discovered going back now another 10 years is that there appears to be altruistic behavior among bacteria. And what we uncovered was that in the face of antibiotic treatment, most of the bugs will be susceptible in a given population, but that a few could very quickly acquire a mutation that would enable those bugs, that small number of bugs, to produce a molecule at some cost to the bug producing molecule that could benefit the entire population, enabling the population to survive in the short term this antibiotic treatment of the antibiotic stressors and uh, allow the culture to regrow around those that, that made it through. Do you see um, pump expression or plasmid um, you know, emission more commonly when bacteria are in a biofilm state or in a separate individual bacteria state? 
It's more so in the individual state or so in the biofilm state where bugs are highly tolerant. It can be a border a thousand times more tolerant to antibiotics than uh, in a free swimming or platonic state. There, it's not so much in the biofilm that it's the pumps. It's actually that the bugs have reduced their metabolic state. So they go into a quasi-dormant state that allows now the bug to tolerate the antibiotic treatment in part, if not largely, because the antibiotic is unable to trigger those downstream metabolic processes that contribute so much to their killing. Do uh, antibiotics tend to cause bacteria to go into a biofilm state, or does it? There is evidence along those lines. Again, and I think bacteria will default in some cases to a biofilm state to protect themselves under stressful situations, might be low nutrients or potential stress such as antibiotics. Uh, I uh, so in in general, there's now some nice work emerging that the formation of biofilm can be triggered by different stress conditions. Um, has anyone observed uh, when bacteria are in biofilm treating the edge of the biofilm with the antibiotic and seeing if there's a ripple effect of behavior or plasmid generation or pump creation or you know gene expression changes throughout the biofilm on the other side, let's say? You know, I haven't seen that. I, you know, for a long time, the argument was that the, the goop, the extracellular polysaccharide matrix that makes up the biofilm served as a protective layer for the bugs. In some ways, that still is the case, but in many, uh, many had argued that it actually prevented the antibiotic from reaching the bug. And that's now since been shown not to be the case, that the antibiotic will, with some delay, in the end, reach the bug in the biofilm, but that the drug is not effective because the bugs are largely in an inactive state. And so in the end, still, I, I think it's likely that the treatment would not trigger uh, such a dynamic response because the bugs in the biofilm are incapable of generating such a dynamic. Well, it seems like a very harsh trade-off you know, if the uh, biofilm is necessitated by, you know, passively acting or non, non-working bacteria, uh, that doesn't seem, seem to be their preferential state. So, I mean, is it, ob- is it observed that bacteria really are dormant in biofilm state or it's just a, a preferential state and they're still active, just uh, maybe it hasn't been determined that they're active? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think there are trade-offs being made. And again, it's probably trade-offs being made in the face of the stressful situation where, the, the, the culture of the colony is at risk of losing a good portion of the colony. And, uh, it, you know, it's interesting to consider those trade-offs uh, that, you know, I think are, are being made at some level and probably have evolved to be made uh, from a strategic standpoint uh, for these bacteria. So what are the new antibiotics that, uh, you know, you've been researching and how do they work and how are they different? So what, what we did with Regina Barzilay was really take a very novel approach to antibiotic discovery to see if we could harness artificial intelligence. And just briefly, what we did was we first put together a training set of about 2,500 molecules. This included 1,700 FDA-approved drugs as well as 800 natural copies. We applied this library of 2,500 molecules against E. coli, so a very commonly studied bacterial pathogen in the lab to see which of these molecules would lead to inhibitory activity against the bug and thus be accounted as demonstrating some antibacterial activity. We took those data along with information on the structure of each molecule and then trained a deep neural network in a computer to learn the features of the molecules associated with antibacterial activity. We then took that trained deep neural network and applied it to a drug repurposing library available at the Broad Institute that consists of several thousand molecules that were developed as drugs or being developed. as, And we challenged the model to identify molecules that are predicted to be antibacterial, but don't look like existing antibiotics. One molecule in that library fit those criteria, and this is this molecule we've termed halicin, 
which turns out to be a very potent novel antibiotic that works against a broad spectrum of pathogens. For example, we tested 35, 36 different panels of multi-drug resistant, extensively drug resistant, and pan-resistant bacterial pathogens from the CDC. And Hallison demonstrated antibacterial activity against 35 of those 36. We showed that it works against TB. We showed that it works against Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, in a mouse model, as well as the Cinebacter balmani, also known as the Iraqi bug, in skin models in mouse. So the molecule discovered using this AI approach turns out to be remarkable. So what is different about the, uh, the molecules that you're discovering? Do they target different receptors that you haven't seen before? Do they target multiple receptors? Like what's different about it? So in the case of Hallison, we did examine uh, how it functions. And it has an unconventional mechanism where it disrupts or dissipates the pH component of the proton motor force of the membrane of the bug. So we actually don't think there's probably a singular molecular target, but instead that this molecule interacts with the membrane of the bug, which has the advantage that it can be quite difficult for the bug to develop resistance against such a compound. And we supported that by running a resistance experiment where we compared the ability of E. coli to develop resistance to halicin versus the ability of the bug to develop resistance to Cipro, very commonly used. After just a few days, we saw resistance to Cipro. And after 30 days, saw resistance of you know, several hundredfold against Cipro. After just a few days of treatment with halicin, we didn't see any resistance. And even after 30 days, we saw no resistance. So this molecule, which we did not discover with the intent of having this mechanism, but uncovered it, by looking for novel structures, came up with a mechanism that we think could be really quite powerful and, and definitely worth further. Is it that um, perhaps the antibiotics that are currently used um, have been observed in nature, maybe at a time past by bacteria, and that's why they're able to develop resistance, but maybe the new molecules that you're creating or the AI is creating just are novel, completely novel, and therefore the bacteria has a much harder time or an impossible time of becoming resistant? You know, I think it's probably two elements in play here. One is that many of our existing antibiotics are natural compounds, so they have existed in nature. And uh, thus the bugs have seen them for centuries, millennia, a long period of time. Second is that, well, unfortunately, we've overused our antibiotics. Uh, we often prescribe antibiotics for infections or for conditions that are not bacterial, unless the antibiotic will have an effect. In many cases, the agricultural industry has been using antibiotics at a high level, both as a prophylactic and as a way to boost growth in livestock. And three, then the argument is that if you can find a molecule that operates by a mechanism that is unconventional, well, then it should actually work around resistance that has already arisen. And then I guess fourth, I said a few, but I'll give you the fourth, is that I was already alluding that because this molecule, I don't think, acts on an individual single target, the ability to then develop mutations to that target would be much easier than now developing mutations that would alter, say, the structural aspect of the membrane that this molecule is likely binding to. Is there a, a trade-off? You know, the perhaps the larger the molecule that uh, that binds to a bacteria, maybe the more it weighs it down, or the more it makes it impossible for it to function. Or is there a way for a molecule to have, let's say, two reactive ends, one that binds and one that signals, like let's say, the immune system to go, you know, phage and eat that uh, that bacteria combination with the molecule? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, our imaginations can run wild of how you might think of making molecules. The actual design can be very, very challenging. But your question around size raises a very important point, and that is that there have been very powerful antibacterial compounds discovered over the last decade or two 
but in many cases, these were discovered in in vitro acids, so outside of the living cell, and turned out that they were too large to get inside what are called gram-negative bacteria, for which we need desperately need new antibiotics, and that these molecules, given their size, couldn't get past the protective layers of the bugs to actually then act on the bugs on the targets for which they were discovered. What's, you know, what's the challenge with gram-negative bacteria? Why are they so much more difficult? To they have an extra protective layer. So they will have an extra, basically, membrane boundary on the outside that will protect the bug, and that makes it that much more difficult to get molecules on the inside. So, for example, E. coli is gram-negative, but staph, which is the bug underlying MRSA, is a gram-positive bug. Would there be, again, a method then to bind to the outer membrane and tag it in such a way that the immune system would see it or that perhaps it would bind with other things instead of having to enter into the gram-negative bacteria to affect it? You know, it's, again, it's an interesting idea. You know, there, there are some molecules that work on the outside. Uh, you know, the challenge is finding ones that could then bind in a very directed way. And as you said, then you have to find, could you have a molecule that had the other side of the molecule then being exposed? And I'm not aware of any work that's been effective in that direction. I mean, wouldn't AI possibly be able to open the door for such things like that? When maybe right now it would be too difficult. But maybe you know, AI could be possible. I mean, you, you've got to get, in, in the case of, uh, let's say, the AI type approaches that we've been developing, it's critical to get the appropriate training data. So, for example, not on this design feature that you're getting after, but the idea of can you get molecules of the right type inside gram negatives, we are now exploring how you might be able to obtain the appropriate training data to explore those molecules that can get inside gram negatives. Could we then train neural, deep neural networks to identify features of those molecules that make them amenable for uptake into gram negatives? They would enable us to discover other molecules, new molecules, and or design molecules that could have those features and thereby expand our antibiotic arsenal. So where's the strength of the AI that you're using in, in partnership? Um, based on the training data you do have, where is it showing its strength? You know, I think it's showing its, our strength in, in really two key features. One is that we can apply it to very, very large data sets, libraries that would be difficult otherwise to go through, whether by a human, uh, through just scanning the molecules and or experimentally screening them. So following up on our analysis of the Bro drug, drug repurposing library, we applied our LEARN model to the zinc database, which includes 1.5 million molecules, billion molecules, sorry. And we decided to look at about 10% of this database, so of order about 170 million molecules, applying the same model, asking the same question, could you identify molecules that are predicted to be antibiotics but don't look like existing antibiotics? And our model identified several hundred of these that we then were able to test some subset of these leading to completely novel antibiotic structures and potential antibiotic leads. So the first advantage there was that we could rapidly and inexpensively, we did this in a matter of three to four days, use the model to screen these very, very large, vast libraries, opening up much larger chemical spaces to find new animals that would be impossible to do experimentally. Second is that the model enables us to do something that a human would have difficulty doing, and that is finding molecules that could be good antibiotics but don't look like existing antibiotics. And that would be a challenge for even a very, very good antibiotic expert in that how do you find something that you're not used to looking and we are able to show that our platform could do that quite readily, quite straight. How come um, antibiotics are not given more as cocktails, where you have less of each, where you're giving, let's say, four different kinds, because that has different targets, and therefore it may uh, overcome the ability of a bacterial population to, to resist it? Would that, I guess, this is the trade-off that it may become super resistant? 
Yeah, it's a very good, very good question. So for TB treatment, frontline TB treatment typically involves three to four different drugs that are used. Outside of that, there is a, a relatively popular treatment called Augmentin that involves a couple antibiotics and a cocktail. Um, I think the reason we haven't seen more of it is that physicians haven't found the need for it, that they'll just prescribe you penicillin, tobramycin, or vancomycin, or Cipro, and just easy to follow the one course. Uh, but I think as we increasingly need to address antibiotic-resistant infections, I think we do need to consider moving toward cocktails because cocktails tend to have a lower tendency toward the emergence of resistance. And this could help keep resistance at bay for longer periods and thereby keep our arsenal that much more effective. What about deliberately exposing um, a bacteria to a series of antibiotics to cause it to become resistant, but in doing so, perhaps as a trade-off for it, where now it's, it's stuck in a more narrow range of adaptation, and then you can hit it with a certain new drug that will kill it because it's spent so much energy and time to adapt itself. Maybe it's, I guess, off a joke, you could say. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I've, I've not seen any work in that regard. Uh, obviously, our clinician friends probably would not be happy with that strategy. They were going to generate resistance. But if, if you know, you need to first have data to show that forcing the bug into that state makes it more vulnerable. And so it's an interesting hypothesis, but I haven't seen data in that direction. Yeah, I just wondered if it's being considered. I mean, is anyone studying when bacteria become resistant? What's changed about them? Do they stay in that resistance state, you know, ongoing, or do they relapse back to a more energetically preferential state? You know, I mean, like there, are, there are colleagues. It's not, a focus, it's not a focus of my lab, but there are colleagues that are looking at that. If you deliver antibiotic A, does it make the bug more sensitive to antibiotic B? And you know, it becomes interesting on strategies of could you take account of dynamics of the response of the bug to the drug or the set of drugs in order to design more effective treatments. It, it becomes a big challenge, though, when you think about actual implementation. One can do it in a lab, a lab like mine, where you could have a very willing grad student postdoc to, to introduce that at a cell culture. But now if you're going to ask a primary care physician or patient themselves to administer things in that fashion, it, it poses major and dramatic challenges on implementation. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you could share it, but um, the novel molecules that appear to be suggested by the AI model I'm sure you're in the process of confirming whether they're working or not, but are they different? And, you know, what is the AI coming up with and what's your, what's your view of it? Are these molecules truly different and what's different about them? Is there a, a hallmark of difference that you're noticing? You know, we haven't noticed a hallmark of difference in the molecule. So it's very early in our efforts. We're in the midst of launching what we're calling the Antibiotics AI Project. The goal of using these and related platforms to dramatically expand our antibiotic arsenal. You know, to date, I don't think the molecules that we've uncovered, which we are following up on, they're showing promise, that they point to a singular set of differences that set them apart. Having said that, we are now ramping up the platform in two key new directions. One is looking to see if we can use the platform to discover novel narrow-spectrum antibiotics, and that is antibiotics that go after a specific pathogen, sparing the commensals that make up our gut or our skin other aspects of our human microbiome. And second is to then utilize the model, not simply as a discovery tool, that is not simply to apply it to existing chemical libraries to see if it could identify molecules that could be novel antibiotics, but to use it as a design tool. So to use the learned features of the models to begin to put together molecules, de novo, that could function as novel antibiotics. Are there other groups that are profiling the exterior membrane of common bacteria and building a library of those with 
you know, a whole bunch of receptors on them so that you, you could match it against your, your work? You know, I haven't seen those data. Uh, not ones looking at receptors on the bugs. I mean, each of those would open up interesting possibilities, though, for developing very specific and potentially rapid new diagnostics, but I haven't seen that effort in either the diagnostic or the therapeutic front. Yeah, it seems like that would radically improve the ability to use AI because now you have another training set and you could match the two against each other and maybe find uh, commonalities there, what would match. Yeah, it's interesting. I know you only have so much time in the day. But <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, very good. What's, uh, what do you project as ahead in the next year versus next five years for your work? What milestones do you think you'll be able to hit? You know, I think the milestones in the next year will be to show that we can use the platform to get after narrow spectrum antibiotics. Second, in the, within the next years, we'd like to show you can use the platform to design a de novo antibiotic. When we look out five years, I think our plan is to attempt to discover and design a novel class of antibiotic each year over the next five years and out. And we'd like to also ramp up our efforts through partnerships to advance the molecules from the preclinical stages that we specialize in into clinical trials as appropriate to get these tested and ensure they're safe and effective and get them out to patients who could use them. Is there any um, fast track available through the FDA or through other countries to get to these antibiotics through clinical trials faster? Yeah, there are. And I think these are underutilized uh, because of the challenges of developing antibiotics. But I think our platform is well suited to take advantage of them in as follows. And that because I think we can use our approach to get after the specific design or discovery of antibiotics for specific pathogens, that we can, with very high specificity, come up with new molecules to treat particular conditions. And our hope is to use then resistant infections or particular bacterial infections that have been designated as orphan diseases with unmet medical need, that we could come up with new molecules that would enable us to launch such trials that could be much shorter and much cheaper, leading to uh, a lower cost solution that, that uh, could be achieved in a, in a much shorter time. Are you able to look at phage activity you know, while uh, bacteria are encountering various antibiotics? Because you know, perhaps uh, a bacteria's interaction with a given antibiotic would make it more amenable to being consumed by a phage? You know, we have done work on engineering phage to both attack biofilms and serve as adjuvants to antibiotics. So on the former, we showed you could engineer phage to express enzymes that would expose more and more of the uh, bugs to the engineered bacteriophage, which would now introduce without antibiotics. And it served to be remarkably effective at eradicating 99.99% of biofilms in different settings. In the latter, for the adjuvants, we showed you could engineer phages that now wouldn't go in to kill the bug, but that would express proteins that would disable some of the uh, remediate, remediatory responses that I alluded to earlier in our discussion that would then make the bugs a thousand times to a hundred thousand times more susceptible to the antibiotics. And in the latter, we actually showed that these could be effective in animal treatments. In your work, do you think it's going to be important to consider phage activity or is it just too much all at once and it'll make the models impossible to get any useful data from? You know, I, I think for the, for the antibiotics that we're developing, we have no plans to account for phage activity. Having said that, I think accounting for the actions of phages, independent of your treatments, but as potential narrow-spectrum antibiotics, either in the natural form or engineered form, is an area that deserves a lot more. Okay. Yeah, it's a complicated picture. You can only do so much, so. It is complicated. Well, I mean, we, need, we need more talent to come into this space, and frankly, we need a lot more talent also into the antiviral space. 
Mm. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and, uh, and see your publications? You know, I, I, probably the best is to check out our website. It's collinslab.mit.edu. And we describe much of our work there and encourage people to track our papers. Uh, we tend to get, uh, we, we publish our work uh, and, and make it available as best we can. Okay. Well, very good, James. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Enjoyed our discussion. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.